Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. You guys, we're doing a famous case today. You know, sometimes every now and then we do a hashtag famous case, and then we plunge back into the waters of the more obscure. Well, we're on the peak. We're on the iceberg of the famous today, wobbling and hoping that global warming doesn't melt us. Will we make it through? I think we will. Before I tell you a little bit more about this case, I have a sister anecdote to read. These keep trickling in as people listen to our sister series, which we did during the month of June. And I asked for anecdotes about the spooky, supernatural, beautiful, amazing, spiritual, whatever it is, bond between sisters. And I keep getting great anecdotes. If you're a, okay, if you're listening to this and you're doing like your PhD in like this folklore or psychology or something, Maybe you should do your dissertation on psychic sisters. Just an idea. Okay. This is an anecdote from Monique that she says it's okay to share. She says, I lost my eldest sister, Sue, to cancer on February 29th, 2020. We come from a large family. My sisters, Sue, Louise, and I were always very close. I am the youngest of the family and was called Nikki as a child. As I got older, all my siblings called me by my given name of Monique, except for my sister, Louise. She has continued to call me Nikki. My siblings and I made it in time to say goodbye to Sue before she passed. We were all coming from different parts of the country. My eldest brother and his wife made it just in time the night Sue died. At one point, the hospital staff asked us to leave the room temporarily while they made Sue a little bit more comfortable. When everyone went back into the room after the nurse was done, I decided to sit out in the waiting room to gather my thoughts. I heard my sister-in-law walk by, and I just closed my eyes because honestly I didn't want to talk to anyone at that time. Then, as clear as day, I heard someone say, Nikki. Now, I know it wasn't my sister-in-law because she never called me by my nickname. I was sure it was Louise who called me, so I went back into Sue's room to see what Louise wanted. She said she had not called me. So I went and sat beside Sue's bed to tell her Louise was bugging me. Yeah, we are adults in our 50s and 60s, but we still act like kids. I took a hold of Sue's hand, and she took one, two, three breaths, and she passed away. I am convinced Sue called me by my nickname because I would think it was Louise calling me. Sue knew I would respond immediately to that. Sisters are remarkable. Uh, so that's a magical beautiful anecdote from Monique thank you so much for sending that to me and saying I could share it with everyone okay so back to this case this has been a very popular reader request for ages I like clockwork someone will write in asking me to do this case so this is for all of you this is for all of you who have requested it and all of you are fascinated by this case. Um, I didn't want to do it at first because I was deeply scarred by the movie Heavenly Creatures because I didn't know what I was getting into when I watched it. So I just thought it was a movie about friendship. So it troubled me. It very much troubled me when we got to the scene in the park, which you'll all know about in about 45 minutes. 
anyway, finally, I couldn't resist it anymore. The people had spoken. We're going to do this case. So I hope I add some things to it that you haven't heard before. If you're familiar with it, listen all the way to the end because, ooh, the note I end on is one of the most haunting anecdotes I've ever come across in my research. All right, everyone, we're going to New Zealand in the 1950s and things are going to get weird. Let's go. Pauline and Juliet were the best of friends. They loved each other so very much. They understood each other. They really understood each other, and no one else did. Not their schoolmates, not their teachers, not their siblings, and certainly not their mothers. They were both geniuses. They were incredible writers. They had the voices of angels. They were going to be opera singers. They were some of the only people in the world who had the capacity to see into the great beyond, into what they called the fourth world. They were telepathic. They were insane, and it was wonderful. It made them cool. They were going to go to Hollywood and meet all their favorite movie stars. They were going to kill Pauline's mother. We have it worked out carefully and are both thrilled by the idea, Pauline wrote in her diary. Naturally, we feel a trifle nervous, but the pleasure of anticipation is great. Both girls lived a lonely life before they met each other. And later, much later, when they were separated for good, they'd lead lonely lives again, the loneliest lives in the world, some might say. Their respective lonelinesses started early. Juliet Hume was born in 1938, a white British girl, the privileged daughter of Henry and Hilda. Henry was a physicist, a respected man with a PhD who would later work on Britain's first nuclear bomb— Hilda was a cold, arrogant, elegant sexpot, the sort of person who would gaze straight past you at a party looking for someone more exciting to talk to. Their daughter, Juliet, was a sensitive child, obsessed with fantasy worlds. She found it difficult to tear herself away from her pretend games and return to real life. She would much rather keep on being a fairy or a queen. She was demanding— her mother said, although Hilda didn't seem to have much patience for the work of being a mother. When Juliet was five and a half, her mom gave birth to her younger brother, and Juliet resented the intrusion. By then, World War II was raging, and Juliet had a nasty bout with pneumonia and bronchitis, which was serious enough to be considered life-threatening. So Hilda sent Juliet away, for her safety, for her health, and maybe to get her out of Hilda's hair. It's unclear where exactly Juliet went. She may have spent some time in Barbados. Hilda was vague about the whole thing. She could never be trusted with the entire truth, especially not when the truth made her look like a bad mother. Juliet came back home bitter, feeling that she'd been abandoned by her family, which she sort of had been. This would not be the last time she would be separated from her parents for months or even years. 
Since Juliet was still in poor health, and Hilda's health wasn't great either, Henry Hume decided to take a job in New Zealand, presumably to escape from England's gloomy weather. The family moved there in the fall of 1948, but Juliet wasn't with them. She'd been sent there ahead of time, like a package nobody cared all that much about. As Hilda said later, like it was totally normal, because of Juliet's health, my husband and I had been apart from her for 13 months. Juliet was an excitable, difficult, temperamental kid, and it was hard not to wonder if her parents didn't mind being separated from her, if they liked life better without Juliet in it. In New Zealand, the Hume family didn't make the best impression. Locals found Hilda icy, snobby, and irritatingly superior about the fact that she was from England and they weren't. Before long, Hilda was prowling around looking for lovers. I have never seen a woman so steaming, said one man who knew her. Henry wasn't making a great impression either. At his new job as the rector of Canterbury University College in Christchurch, his colleagues were starting to think he was a bit of a, well, a spineless two-faced liar. But if appearances meant anything, then the Holmes were doing great. They bought a fancy house called Ilum and held parties full of important guests. And Juliet... Sure, she was weird and spent most of her time in dreamland, but she was elegant and smart and lovely and she spoke English with a British accent and everyone who knew her wanted to be her friend. But Juliet didn't want to be anyone's friend. She held herself aloof from her classmates at Christchurch Girls High School, where she started in 1952. As one of her housekeepers said, Juliet could only love herself. She seemed totally self-sufficient So everyone thought it was weird when suddenly Juliet befriended a strange girl who was angry and sarcastic and, if we're being totally frank, from the wrong side of the tracks. Let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsor, Calm. Hi, everyone. Is anyone else really, really stressed these days? (laughs) Not that there's anything to be stressed about. There has not been a single thing wrong with this world for the past year and a half, right? We've all basically been emotionally floating in a inner tube with a drink of choice in our hand for the past 18 months, right? (laughs) Right? We're fine everyone's fine. Anyway, if you sometimes are finding that you're not fine, and if that is affecting how you sleep, I got to tell you about Calm, the number one mental wellness app, which will give you literal tools that improve the way you feel. Well, not literal tools, not hammers and screwdrivers, but very intentional, useful tools that work. Calm is an app that's full of guided daily meditations and sleep stories that will send you to dreamland on a freaking pillow of cotton candy and curated music tracks, really whatever you need for any time of day to relax yourself. So if you're trying to fall back asleep in the middle of the night, they have something for that. If you're trying to take a nap, they have something for that. I've used their sleep meditations and oh my gosh, they just melt you into your mattress and you wake up and you're like, 
what just happened. If you go to calm.com slash criminal broads, you'll get a limited time offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. Yes, for listeners of the show, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off at calm.com slash criminal broads. Go to calm.com slash criminal broads for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. You can be soothed. That's calm.com slash criminal broads. Juliet's new friend, her only friend, was a girl named Pauline Reaper, who liked to be called Paul. She was sulky and obsessed with vengeance, and she had wild curly black hair. She was from a working-class background, unlike Juliet, and came from parents burdened with their own problems. Her dad, Bert, had abandoned his wife and two sons to run away with her mom, Honora, who went by Nora. Nora was born into a wealthy British family that had slid into poverty after her dad went insane and died of what was probably syphilis. Nora had four children, but one died at one day old, and another had mental problems and was sent to live in an institution. Pauline had her health problems, too. As a child, she fell sick with something called osteomyelitis, inflammation of the bone marrow in one of her legs. For a while, it was unclear if she would make it. She spent eight or nine months in the hospital, and it took three years for her leg to fully heal. Actually, it never fully healed. She was left with a permanent limp, and her leg would still ache over a decade later. On paper, Pauline and Juliet couldn't have been more different. Juliet was tall and wealthy and beautiful, with perfect rich girl bone structure and waves of smooth blonde hair and long, elegant limbs— Pauline was short and stocky and working class and appeared so grouchy in photos that it could be hard to tell what she actually looked like. In one photo of Pauline and some of her classmates, all the other girls are smiling politely at the camera, but Pauline is looking down at the ground, scowling. A shadow falls over her face and you can't see her eyes. Many, many years later, Pauline would avoid photographs altogether. But their differences were just on paper. The truth was that the girls were surprisingly similar. Both had suffered from long, lonely childhood illnesses, and in fact, that's what led them to bond initially. Because of their medical history, the girls weren't allowed to participate in sports or gym, and so in school, they sat on the sidelines for hours, talking and dreaming. Both of them had difficult relationships with their mothers. Juliet felt abandoned by hers, while Pauline and Nora just didn't get along most of the time. Nora would fly into rages and scream at Pauline and then try to make it up to her with little presents. In return, Pauline was so rude to her mom that one of her classmates remembers being shocked by it. But now, Juliet and Pauline had found each other. They weren't alone anymore. Pauline thought Juliet was pretty much the most gorgeous, elegant, sophisticated creature of all time. And Juliet loved having an acolyte as passionate as Pauline. 
Later, the popular narrative of their friendship would be that Juliet made all the rules and Pauline followed them. But in reality, the girls were much more equal than it seemed in those early days. They were both feverishly creative, susceptible to the same sorts of deranged ideas and wild dreams. And as far as the girls' biggest and deadliest idea, that one came straight from Pauline. Their friendship got intense fast, in the way that friendships between teenage girls often do. They giggled compulsively over inside jokes. They stayed up way too late talking. They took off their shoes and danced wildly in the grass. They gave each other nicknames like Nigel and Philip or Gina and Deborah. They snuck out of their houses and had midnight picnics with wine stolen from Juliet's parents. They fantasized about their favorite actors. They were total weirdos like so many of us were as teenagers. There's nothing wrong with being a weirdo or spinning around in the grass or convincing yourself that your favorite Hollywood actor is definitely going to marry you someday. But Juliet and Pauline took the intensity and strangeness inherent in teen girl relationships and turned it up to an 11. Together, they convinced themselves that they were the most amazing, clever, genius girls the world had ever seen. They were destined for something special. And because they were so amazing and genius and special, whatever they did, it was going to be morally right. Here's a poem that Pauline wrote about herself and Juliet. The Ones That I Worship There are living among two beautiful daughters of a man who possesses two beautiful daughters, the most glorious beings in creation. They'd be the pride and joy of any nation. You cannot know nor try to guess the sweet soothingness of their caress. The outstanding genius of this pair is understood by few, They are so rare. Compared with these two, every man is a fool. The world is most honored that they should deign to rule. And above us, these goddesses reign on high. I worship the power of these lovely two with that adoring love known to so few. Tis indeed a miracle, one must feel, that two such heavenly creatures are real. Both sets of eyes, though different far, hold many mysteries strange. Impassively they watch the race of man decay and change. Hatred burning bright in the brown eyes with enemies for fuel. Icy scorn glitters in the gray eyes, contemptuous and cruel. Why are men such fools they will not realize the wisdom that is hidden behind those strange eyes? And these wonderful people are you and I. A bit grandiose, right? Referring to themselves as goddesses, as heavenly creatures. Compared with these two, every man is a fool. As the girls' friendship progressed, they moved further and further into their own little world, where they were the goddesses of creation, and everyone else just didn't matter. They wrote furiously, creating imaginary empires called Barovnia and Volumnia, which they populated with murderers and rapists. They loved evil characters in their fiction and in the movies they obsessed over. Evil was bold. Evil was glamorous. Evil was the only way to live, they seemed to think. At the very least, evil was cool. Though, 
Sometimes they changed their minds about evil and got religious in a vaguely fanatical sort of way. One day, they convinced themselves that they'd seen into another land. They had this vision while staring at the ocean. Pauline described it rapturously in her diary. Today, Juliet and I found the key to the fourth world. We realize now that we have had it in our possession for about six months, but we only realized it on the day of the death of Christ. We saw a gateway through the clouds. We sat on the edge of the path and looked down the hill out over the bay. The island looked beautiful. The sea was blue. Everything was full of peace and bliss. We then realized we had the key. We now know that we are not as genii as we thought. We have an extra part of our brain which can appreciate the fourth world. Only about ten people have it. When we die, we will go to the fourth world. But meanwhile, on two days every year, we may use the key and look into that beautiful world which we have been lucky enough to be allowed to know of on this day of finding the key to the way through the clouds. They were spending most of their time at Juliet's home. After all, Juliet was the one with the good food and the wine and the mom who had long evening gowns that the girls could dress up in. Pauline wouldn't have complained if she could have magically woken up one morning as part of the Hume family. She adored going over to their mansion, Ilum, and spent the night as often as she could. When the Hooms invited her to their summer cottage, she was in heaven. She'd tell Hilda that her own mother was cruel and would beat her, and Hilda seemed to revel in Pauline's love and encourage its strange intensity. Sometimes Hilda would say that she wished Pauline was her daughter, too. By now, the girls were sneaking out as much as possible and sleeping very little, preferring to stay up and write furiously. After one too many of these late nights outdoors in the cold, Juliet came down with a bad case of tuberculosis and was sent to a sanatorium. Her parents thought this was the perfect time to scramble off to London and then the U.S. on a work-slash-pleasure trip. After all, Juliet had nurses looking after her. She didn't need her parents there. And so Juliet recovered alone in the sanatorium for 112 days. The only person who was there for her was Pauline. Pauline visited when she could and wrote letters as often as humanly possible. It would be wonderful if I could get tuberculosis too, she wrote in her diary. Often the girls would send each other two letters, one as themselves and one as one of their fictional characters, like Prince Charles of Barovnia or Lancelot Trelawney of Volumnia. Their characters lived lives that were overflowing with seduction, rape, suicide, and violence, as though someone had boiled down Hollywood's pulpiest films into a thick jelly. They murdered right and left indiscriminately, and they romanticized murder. As one of their characters wrote, I would like to kill someone sometime, because I think it is an experience that is necessary to life. As Juliet recovered, Pauline didn't dedicate all her energy to her friend. She was also busy with a quintessential teenage activity, trying to get herself a boyfriend. Her family had been taking in boarders to make extra money. Just another way that Pauline's family was so embarrassingly inferior to the elegant Whom family. And she and one of these boarders kept trying to sneak off and have sex. One night, her dad caught them, and the boarder was sent packing. But Pauline kept sneaking off to see him until finally they were able to consummate the act. She didn't like this guy as much as she liked Juliet, but she liked him enough to be furious at her mother when her mother forbade her from ever seeing him again. 
Speaking of fury, when Juliet finally got out of the sanatorium, she was especially cold towards her parents. She was convinced that they had abandoned her and that Pauline was the only person in the world who loved her. The girls' friendship started to get more and more intense, so intense that all four of their parents began getting a bit concerned about where exactly this friendship was going. Juliet never went back to school since she was still recovering, and so she was spending more and more time in her troubling fantasy worlds, and Pauline was now struggling with an eating disorder and was dropping weight at an alarming pace. What was going on, thought their parents. Finally, Henry Hume suggested to Bert that he should send Pauline to a doctor. The doctor declared solemnly that the girls were under the spell of a lesbian attachment, but that it wouldn't last. With the vague worry of lesbianism hanging over their heads, the Hooms and the Reapers tried weakly to keep the girls apart, but it didn't work. If Nora ever told Pauline that she couldn't visit Juliet, Pauline would fly into a frenzy. Once, she raged in her diary, Why could not mother die? Dozens of people are dying all the time. Thousands. So why not mother? And father, too. People would always speculate about whether or not the girls were lovers. There was certainly a strong homoerotic component to their friendship, but Juliet would later deny that she was a lesbian or that the girls had been romantically involved. Regardless of their particular sexual orientation, though, it was impossible to deny that the girls were getting more and more sexual in their fantasies. They decided that they were going to be sex workers, they took naked photos of each other, and they obsessed over their favorite Hollywood actors. They called these actors the saints, and they worshipped them. Their favorite actors were James Mason and Guy Rolfe. These two were the gods, known as him and his. Their other favorite actors were saints, and they gave them all nicknames like he, it, this, that, and who. They started making plans to travel to Hollywood where they would become famous writers and rub elbows with everyone from him to it. And they came up with a new game. During their sleepovers, they'd act out how each one of the saints would make love. This kept them awake for hours. Some nights, they'd only get an hour or two of sleep. And then they'd wake up and go about their morning just a little bit more divorced from reality than they had been the day before. The girls weren't the only ones whose minds were full of sex. Hilda had taken a lover. She even had him move into a flat on the grounds of Ilum. Years later, the family gardener would say that once he was called over to look at a clogged drain by the flat, and he discovered that the source of the clog was a whole lot of condoms. It didn't take the girls long to suspect that Hilda was having an affair. They could see how she and her lover acted around each other. This was perfect, the girls thought to themselves. All they had to do was catch the two of them in the act and then blackmail them for money, which they would then use to fund their trip to Hollywood. There was instability in both families in those days, and it was emerging more and more. Juliet's dad was in trouble at work, and his colleagues were trying to get him out of there. In Pauline's house, tensions were high between Pauline and her mother. 
because Nora had promised Pauline that if her behavior improved, she would be allowed to see that guy again, the boarder who Pauline slept with. And so Pauline tried really hard to improve herself. But one day, when Pauline secretly talked to her lover, she found out that her mom had called him and forbidden the two of them from ever seeing each other again. This was a betrayal, Pauline thought. Just another reason to think her life would be a lot better without her mom. As the girls schemed about their mothers, blackmailing them, freeing themselves from them, running away to Hollywood without them, the girls' families were counting down the days until this strange and codependent friendship would be over for good. It was going to be over because the entire home family was leaving the country. Henry and Hilda had quite the bombshell to drop on their daughter. They were getting divorced, Henry was quitting his job, and they were all moving back to England. Well, everyone except Juliet, that is. They were sending Juliet to South Africa for her health, quote-unquote, and to separate her from Pauline, and, though they never said this, but their behavior consistently demonstrated it, to separate her from themselves. The girls were shocked at this news. What was going to become of their schemes, their dreams, their plans? One thing was certain. They refused to be separated. We sink or swim together, Pauline wrote in her diary. They started discussing their options. Clearly, if Juliet was being sent to South Africa, Pauline would have to go too. The whom parents allowed Pauline to think that this was a possibility in a sort of, mm-hmm, sure, dear, we'll definitely pay for your ticket kind of way. But Pauline took all of this very, very seriously. Before long, she had convinced herself that the only reason she wouldn't be able to go to South Africa with Juliet was her mother. Her mother wouldn't let her go. Now, this part was certainly true. There was no way Nora would have let Pauline go to South Africa with Juliet. But the whom parents definitely wouldn't have let the girls travel together either. They were just trying to placate the girls by implying that, oh yes, you two will totally be on the same ship to South Africa. <laughs> If Juliet's parents hadn't been so cowardly, if they had openly said, no, Pauline, you're not coming with us, then maybe this story would have a very different ending. But instead, Pauline put the entire responsibility for her unhappiness on her mother's overburdened shoulders. Anger against my mother boiled up inside me, as it is she who is one of the main obstacles in my path, she wrote in her diary. Suddenly, a means of ridding myself of this obstacle occurred to me. If she were to die, dot, dot, dot. The death should seem natural or accidental, she mused. She broached the idea to Juliet. Juliet was skeptical, but did not, as Pauline wrote, disagree violently. The girls were going farther and farther off the rails in those days. They were smack in the middle of their teenage years. Pauline was 16, Juliet was 15. And now they were dreaming about wiping out the entire world. They made a list of people to kill. They added new saints to their pantheon with nicknames like her, yours, mine, which, either, one, neither, other, Rico, Hollander, Elsa, Mora, Christopher Robin, and Hugo did. They started shoplifting. They convinced themselves that they were telepathic. Then they decided that they were certifiably insane. 
we realized why we have such extraordinary telepathy and why people look at us the way they do and why we behave as we do, Pauline wrote. It is because we are mad. We are both stark, raving mad. There is no doubt about it, and we are thrilled by the thought. They were sleeping less and less, obsessed with the saints and the game in which they acted out the saints' sex lives. We have now learned the peace of the thing called bliss, the joy of the thing called sin, Pauline wrote. They talked of murder. They called it moider, M-O-I-D-E-R, as a fun little inside joke. But the idea of the moider itself was no joke. They had it all planned out. They'd take Nora for a walk in the park and bash her over the head with something and then claim that she'd fallen off the path. And then one day, the girls decided to put this idea into action. Come for a walk with us, Mommy, Pauline said. Nora agreed, delighted at the chance to bond with her difficult daughter. The night before their walk, Pauline wrote in her diary, I feel very keyed up, as though I were planning a surprise party. Mother has fallen in with everything beautiful, and the happy event is to take place tomorrow afternoon. So next time I write in this diary, mother will be dead. How odd, yet how pleasing. Grouchy, sullen, difficult Pauline could not have been more lovely on June 22, 1954, the day of her mother's death. She woke up and pulled out her diary right away. The day of the happy event, she scribbled. I am writing a little of this up on the morning before the death. I felt very excited and the night before Christmas-ish last night. I did not have pleasant dreams, though. I am about to rise. In the house, Pauline was a veritable ray of sunshine, sweet to her parents, charming to her sister. It was a wonderful way for everyone to start the day. At the home house, Juliet was also being a little ray of sunshine. She chirped goodbye to her mother and left with a spring in her step and half of a brick in her purse. When she got to Pauline's house, the girls prepared the murder weapon. They slipped it into one of Pauline's stockings and knotted the stocking so that the brick wouldn't fall out if anyone should, you know, swing it around. And then, with the brick now in Pauline's purse, the two girls set off with Nora. She took them to a little tea shop right near Victoria Park, where they nibbled on buns and cake. Then they set off into the sunny afternoon. What was Nora thinking as she walked along? She must have been feeling relieved. She and her daughter were finally getting along with each other. Tea and cakes and a lovely walk in the park with her beloved child. Yes, Victoria Park was rather wild and lonely. And yes, she and Pauline had their differences. But maybe this was the start of a new era for them. Maybe Nora and her daughter could finally become close especially since Juliet was about to vanish from their lives, thank God. Yes, it seems very likely that as Nora walked along through the trees, she was happy. Juliet was walking ahead of them, just like the girls had planned. When no one was looking, she dropped something in the path, 
a little pink stone that she'd removed from a piece of jewelry earlier. She called Nora to come over and look at the delightful little stone. Dutifully, Nora walked towards her and bent down to exclaim over the pink stone, and behind her, Nora's own daughter slipped the brick out of her purse, held it high, and brought it crashing down on the back of her mother's head. The girls had thought that murder would be easy. They thought it would take one blow, bam, one blow, and Nora would fall to the ground dead, and they'd tell everyone that she slipped, and they'd move on with their lives. But death wasn't that simple. They hadn't counted on how badly people want to live. Nora fought back, fought back against her daughter, trying to block the blows with her hand. But the blows kept coming, so many that the tip of her finger was almost completely severed. Eventually, she fell to the ground. There, Juliet took her turn with the brick. Then Pauline took the brick again, and Juliet grabbed Nora's throat and held her against the dirt as Pauline hit her mother over and over. Nora wasn't quiet. She was moaning, gurgling. There was blood everywhere, oozing from her head, dripping down the path. Eventually, the girls just left her there, still gurgling, and ran back up to the tea shop. They were splattered in blood and breathing hard. Mummy has been hurt, Pauline yelled. It's Mummy. She's terribly hurt. She's dead. She's covered with blood, yelled Juliet. Please, somebody help. Juliet was nearly hysterical, and Pauline was white-faced. But when the kind tea shop lady helped them clean up, Juliet said, Oh dear, isn't she nice? And the two girls started giggling uncontrollably. The kind tea shop lady thought that was kind of strange, but of course the poor dears were in shock. When she asked the girls what had happened, Pauline explained that her mother had fallen and bumped her head multiple times. At that, Juliet broke in. Don't think about it, she said. It's only a dream. We'll wake up soon. At first, Pauline took the blame, happily. Juliet had quote-unquote confessed to detectives that she'd been farther down the path when the accident happened and had come rushing back only to find Pauline cradling her mother's bloody head and she really had no idea what had happened. Pauline willingly supported Juliet's story of innocence. Oh yes, she said, Juliet hadn't been there. Yes, she, Pauline, had hit her mother with the brick, but Juliet hadn't been there at all, and that was the important part. Hilda was delighted when she realized that Pauline would take the entire blame for whatever nastiness had just happened in Victoria Park. To be safe, though, Hilda destroyed Juliet's diary after taking a peek inside and realizing that it was full of, shall we say, incriminating evidence. Still, another diary would doom Juliet. As Pauline waited in one detective's office, she found herself a piece of scrap paper and she started writing on it. She was loath to miss a day without scribbling in her beloved journal. 
The moiter had been successful, she wrote, but now she, quote, found herself in an unexpected place. Anyone would think I'd been good, she wrote. I've had a pleasant time with the police. I am taking the blame for everything. As soon as she finished writing, the detective who'd been watching her grabbed the paper and read it. One sentence stood out to him. I am taking the blame for everything. The police went to arrest Juliet at that, and Juliet quickly changed her story and admitted that she was guilty, too. As the police worked on the case, they uncovered a little detail about Pauline's parents. They had never actually been married. This meant that the most shocking part of the whole affair for Pauline wasn't the fact that her mother was dead or that she was now under arrest— No, it was the news that her real last name wasn't Reaper. It was Parker. Her real name was Pauline Parker. She was absolutely dumbfounded to hear that. As far as the whole moiter situation, hey, at least Juliet was there. The girls gossiped to each other in their cell and sassily asked the guards for tea. At trial, the girls' lawyers did their best to argue that the girls had been insane at the time of the murder. They were lost in a folie a deux, haunted by paranoia, strung out on delusions of grandeur. One of the psychiatrists who interviewed them and tried to argue that they were insane found the girls unbearably arrogant in person. He wasn't going to let all his feelings be known at trial, of course. But my God, those girls were really insufferable. They were pleased that they'd murdered Nora, he found. There's nothing in death, Juliet told him coldly. After all, she wasn't a very happy woman. The day we killed her, I think she knew beforehand what was going to happen and didn't seem to bear any grudge. One day, after these sorts of gruesome interviews, that psychiatrist went to his friend's house, asked for a huge glass of whiskey, and told his friend that he'd never encountered such pure evil as he had in those two girls. Juliet's father wasn't at the trial. He'd left town, abandoning his daughter as per usual, saying that he needed to uh, start a new job in England and taking Juliet's brother with him. Hilda did go to the trial, and she sat next to her lover every day, which made people gossip wildly. In court, the girls whispered to each other and were sometimes seen giggling. They watched the various witnesses with what one journalist described as contemptuous amusement. The prosecutor argued that the murder was intentional and that the girls were clearly sane. It was a coldly, callously planned and premeditated murder, he said, committed by two highly intelligent but precocious and dirty-minded little girls. A pathologist tested about just how horrific Nora's wounds had been. She had 45 external injuries, and most of them were very serious, he said. Some of them went all the way down to the bone. The girls had done a good job of murder. During the prosecutor's closing statement, Juliet put her fingers in her ears. The jury deliberated for two hours and twelve minutes, and Juliet had a faint smile on her face when they walked back into the courtroom. But after she looked closely at their expressions, her smile vanished. Guilty, said the foreman. The girls were sentenced to be held in prison until, quote, her majesty's pleasure, that is, indefinitely, and punishment of punishments, they were sent to different prisons. 
After the trial was over, Hilda scrambled out of New Zealand. Never mind that her daughter was locked up. Hilda had places to go, people to see. Anyway, Juliet was refusing to talk to her. She told the press that what Juliet needed most was love, care, attention, and affection. And then she grabbed her lover and skipped town. People may have thought Hilda was pretty much the worst mother ever, but most of the public's hatred was reserved for the girls. Sure, there were a few people who were sympathetic to them and others who desperately wanted to date them, but most people thought that the girls were unbearable, cold, arrogant, delusional, and unrepentant. One of the people who couldn't stand them was a policewoman who once heard Juliet whisper to Pauline, "'The old girl took a bit more killing than we thought.'" Another was one of their psychiatrists, who later wrote a paper about them. They mattered intensely to each other, and no one else in the world mattered at all, or was worthy of any consideration, he wrote. It was supremely important to them that they should not be separated, perhaps more important than life itself, and certainly more important than anyone else's life. In prison, the girls weren't allowed to write to each other. Even though they were hundreds of miles apart now, they maintained their delusional sense of superiority to the rest of the world. Juliet studied Italian and read poetry. Pauline cut murder stories out of magazines and refused to work, telling a staff member, I am a special case here. They were far better than the other women behind bars, they thought. Everyone else was in there for petty, embarrassing crimes like solicitation. They were there for the greatest, the most magnificent crime of all. Murder. One thing did break through Juliet's icy exterior, though. Her dad had married again, and he sent her a letter telling her that— And his letter was so cold and callous that prison authorities intercepted it, sent it back to him, and told him to try it again, this time with feeling. Juliet was shocked by the news. Her entire life had been a series of unpleasant surprises from her parents, and this was just one more reason for her to feel separate from them, abandoned by them. She was halfway across the world from them, doing time, and they were embarking on romances. Neither Juliet nor Pauline ended up doing a lot of time, though. In November of 1959, five and a half years into their sentences, they were secretly released. They were given new names, and they went their separate ways, as authorities kept the press in the dark for another month or so. For years, there was a rumor circulating that they had been released on one condition, that they could never talk again. But this wasn't true. They could have talked to each other the day they got out of prison. They could have immediately found each other, hugged each other, moved to Hollywood together. But they didn't. They stayed away from each other, like repelling magnetic fields. Juliet moved back to England to be close to her family, and then she eventually made her way to Hollywood, alone, where she worked odd jobs and became a Mormon. In her spare time, she continued writing novels. Pauline became Roman Catholic, tried to become a nun, then went to library school and worked as a librarian. Her father never forgave her. 
The rest of his life was miserable. People pointed at him wherever he went and whispered, there goes the man whose daughter killed his wife. But time moved on, and the world kept turning, and both of the girls eventually and successfully vanished into their new lives. Most people around them had no idea who they'd been, what they'd done. Of course, plenty of writers and journalists were still very interested in the story of the Parker Home murder, as it came to be called. You couldn't deny that it was a juicy one. Two teenage girls form an intense homoerotic bond that results in fantasy worlds and grandiose delusions, and then they end up killing one of their mothers? Wow. Novelists wrote novels about it. Playwrights wrote plays about it. Hollywood came sniffing around the story. And so it was inevitable that journalists would join the fray, too, and start to wonder, well, where are the girls now? In 1994, a journalist finally tracked down Juliet. What he found was extraordinary. She was living in England under the name Anne Perry, and she was an extremely successful murder mystery writer. She had sold so many books that she was able to buy herself a mansion in the English countryside, which she decorated in the Italian style. There, she employed two part-time secretaries, an assistant, a housekeeper, and three gardeners. She filled her best-selling books with grisly homicides and with musings on the nature of good versus evil. In many of her books, murder is depicted as something not good— but something that passionate people do. People who care. Boring, weak, pathetic people don't murder. They don't have it in them. Juliet always said that being discovered as Anne Perry was a nightmare. But it was great for her book sales. She started giving interview after interview, and in each one, she rewrote the past so that it became a bit more flattering. She claimed that she had become extremely remorseful for her crime in prison. But no one who knew her in prison remembered any sign of remorse. She said that she had been on heavy medication for tuberculosis at the time of the crime, medication that altered her mood. This was not true either. She said that Pauline had been so unhealthy before the murder, so under the thrall of her eating disorder, that she, Juliet, worried that Pauline might kill herself or just straight up die if Juliet didn't support her in every single way. So of course she had to join her on the day of the murder. She was really just being a good friend. In 2006, she told the Daily Mail that she never thought about the murder or about Nora. She was somebody I barely knew, she said. There's a documentary about her life, and in it, one of her friends says that Juliet doesn't talk much about her childhood. She doesn't believe she had a childhood. Now that Juliet was discovered, someone had to figure out what had happened to Pauline. 
if it was shocking to discover that Juliet was a rich and famous author, it was equally shocking to discover that Pauline had become a total recluse. She was living in a tiny English village under the name Hilary Nathan, as close to being a nun as one could be without actually being a nun. She was very religious and spent most of her time alone. She had worked as a teacher and then retired, and now she ran a riding academy for girls. But when she wasn't doing that, she retreated back into her life of solitude and prayer. After her identity was discovered, she moved to remote Scotland and tried to regain her anonymity. Every now and then, a journalist would come knocking at her door. She reacted to them with absolute rage. Pauline has never given an interview and probably never will. Juliet won't stop talking, it seems. In interview after interview, Juliet has always insisted that she has nothing to say to Pauline, that she never dwells on the past. Does Pauline have things to say to Juliet, though? Does she dwell on the past? After she moved from England to Scotland, people got the chance to peek inside her English house— and they saw that Pauline had painted a huge mural on one of her bedroom walls. The mural was full of little scenes featuring two girls, one with blonde hair, one with dark hair. The girls are wearing theater masks, and the blonde girl is usually smiling, while the dark-haired girl looks troubled, grief-stricken, agonized. In one section of the mural, the blonde girl sits on a winged horse, about to fly away, as the dark-haired girl clings desperately to the horse's leg, trying to keep them on the earth. In another section, two girls are growing like flowers from the same green stalk, as a huge axe comes down from the sky and splits them in half. Perhaps the most haunting image is the one of the two girls surrounded by flames. Maybe they're rising out of the fire like the phoenix rising from the ashes. But maybe, and this seems more likely given Pauline's Catholicism, maybe it's the fires of hell and they're burning up in it. And if you look closer at the girls' theater mask faces, you'll see the scariest part. As they burn, they're looking at each other and they're smiling. The end, my dear now traumatized listeners. Run, don't walk to Instagram.com slash criminal broads to see photos of the mural. You know you want to inspect it and psychoanalyze it and tell me all your thoughts at criminalbroads at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, for your support. As always, if you'd like to support the podcast, leaving a review is wonderful. Becoming a patron at patreon.com slash criminalbroads is awesome also wonderful and supporting the sponsors like calm you might not think it has anything to do with me but it actually really helps the podcast if you support the sponsors it's all wonderful or just keep on being your lovely selves and i will meet you here next week until then have a good one bye bye maybe i'm right maybe i'm wrong loving you dear like i do
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.